The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we'll be talking about vaginas. Enough said. Coming up this episode, we'll speak to Marie Herberstein on why female genitalia aren't given the scientific attention they deserve, followed by a conversation with Emily Anthes on the history and reinvention of female condoms. But let's kick it off with Anthony Atala with an interview about engineering vaginas. Enjoy! This is Science for the People, and I'm Desiree Shell. I'm joined by Dr. Anthony Atala, MD, Director of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He leads a team of 300 people who are working to build replacement organs and tissues in the lab. His team was the first in the world to engineer organs in the lab that were implanted in humans. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Good to be with you today. So recently, uh, your team reported success engineering vaginal organs for four women born with a rare genetic disorder. So basically, you engineered a vagina, four of them, actually. That's right. So, and all the patients were young women who were born without functioning vaginas. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. You know, there's this condition uh, where patients are born with an absent or defective vaginal organ. Um, some call the condition Meyer-Rukitansky syndrome. It's just a, a name. It goes by many different descriptions. But basically, what happens is that these patients are born with a rudimentary structure that may or may not develop into the organ. And we targeted patients who had basically uh, an absent organ. So they didn't have a vaginal cavity then? That's exactly right. You know, and these patients uh, do not have a vaginal cavity, but also about half of them may not have a uterus either um, or, or may have other abnormalities as well. The uterus, of course, being the organ that houses the baby during birth. So about half the patients don't have a uterus as well. And so that also means that they couldn't menstruate or have sex. Well, they cannot menstruate, but they can, in fact, have sex. Oh, Okay. Actually, I was talking about the uterus. I, I just want to make sure that it's clear. I, the, the patients cannot menstruate and cannot have sex. That is correct if they don't have a vaginal organ or a uterus. Okay, well, please do walk me through, uh, through your method uh, in detail, if you could. You know, basically what we do is we bring the patients in approximately six to eight weeks prior to their scheduled surgery. And then a small piece of tissue is taken from the rudimentary organ. The piece of the tissue is very small, less than half the size of a postage stamp. And But that tissue has all the cell elements needed to create the whole new organ. So we then take that piece of tissue and we scrape the cells away that make up the organ and we then expand those cells separately so we can create a construct that replicates the shape of the organ and then we're able to put it back into the patient. And how long does the vagina take to grow? The whole process takes about uh, four to six weeks. Basically, it takes uh, a few weeks for the cells to grow, 
and be expanded, and the organ's made up of two major cell types. So we grow the cells separately, and we then create a scaffold which replicates the shape of the organ, a mold, if you will, and these scaffolds are fully degradable. They're materials, basically. They look like a piece of your blouse or your shirt, but they're very specialized materials that degrade. It, the materials go away once inside the body. So we place the cells on the scaffold. We place the scaffold in the cells in this oven-like device, an incubator, that has the same conditions as the human body in terms of temperature, oxygen, etc. And we then are able to mature the structure in the laboratory, in the bioreactor, before we implant it back into the patient. Now, this process was successful in each of the, the four people? Yes, we actually did a pilot series where we basically performed a procedure on all the patients who presented with that diagnosis who had that absent organ. And we basically ended up doing the exact same procedure in, in all of those four patients who came in within a three-year period. Now, you waited years uh, until you announced the results of your research, didn't you? Yes, we did. Um, and the main reason for that uh, is that it was very important in this particular experience to look at the long-term results of the procedure and the technology. We actually waited up to, we had up to an eight-year follow-up before we published the results. And that was critical because one of the major challenges is, that, uh, is to make sure that these organs do in fact function and function adequately and are able to remain with normal function long-term. And that was very important before we published the results. So how are these women doing now? What are they, what are they able to do before, uh, now that they couldn't before? Well, of course, before they could not have any sexual activity because the organ was not there. So now the patients, in terms of the parameters that are measured from a medical standpoint, which is a, uh, uh, an assessment uh, of functionality, in terms of sexuality, they're performing just like uh, normal patients would. And, and so are, are these four women now able to conceive? Well, interestingly, it just, uh, it just so happened that we ended up with the same average as a general average for patients. About half the patients uh, do not have a uterus who have this condition, and the same was true for this patient series. So two of the patients did not have a uterus, and two of the patients did. So the ones who do have a uterus should be able to conceive. Well, this is obviously amazing. So how, how long have you been trying to perfect this technique? You know, we actually started working on this technology uh, over 20 years ago, believe it or not. So, you know, we, we first started out with a cell biology, just trying to get the cells to grow, and, uh, and we couldn't even get the cells to grow initially there was this concept that these cells had a natural inability to be expanded outside the body. So we really had to look very closely at the growth factor biology, the cell biology, if you will, that would allow us to get the right cells and be able to grow them and expand them outside the body in a reproducible manner. So that took a while. Then, of course, uh, being able to go through the actual process of engineering to make sure that we had experimentally uh, what what uh, would be normal organs over time. Well, and also the, the women that were your patients, it's a rare syndrome, is it not? You know, it's interesting. For this particular syndrome, 
uh, it's about uh, uh, you know uh, it's about one out of every uh, three thousand uh, patients who who have this syndrome. So you do see it, uh, but the, we targeted this particular syndrome because we wanted to make sure that we treated the same type of patient over and over again. But of course, this technology would also be useful for patients who develop cancer in, in that region or who have traumatic injury in that region uh, or just have other problems for other, for other reasons. So now before this, before your technique, we were able to grow organs using skin grafts, right? That is correct. That is correct. We would create the organs out of the patient's own skin, a replacement tissue that would fit in that region. And what were the problems there? Because I understand there were myriad. Yeah, the problem with using skin, as you can imagine, is that the skin does not have the lubricating ability of the native tissue, and, and they would tend to f fibrose and scar down. Uh, over time, uh, allowing uh, painful intercourse to to be present uh, at the time of activity, uh, and so by it's a replacement that certainly um, can do the job that it's required, but certainly it's not ideal. And how is yours better? Well, I think you know there are many options now, and this is just one more option, but the the fact that you're creating the organ with the patient's own cells that are supposed to be there to start with, using the patient's own vaginal tissue uh, and recreating an organ that basically the patient has as its own organ over time, you're able to replicate the functionality of the organ just like you, just like, uh, as if that patient would have had a normal or organ to start with. Now, of course, when I was mentioning your research to people, uh, because as soon as this came out, uh, I knew I wanted to interview you. So the first <laughs> thing people want to know is, is if this could lead to allowing men to get pregnant. You know, well, it's interesting because, as you know, the vaginal organ is just one of the uh, components needed for reproduction. Of course, you, you still need a uterus that would house the baby and you would still need ovaries that would create the hormonal milieu and, and produce the eggs for fertilization. So basically, at this point, the answer, of course, would be no, not for men at this point. Now, I also noticed um, in one of the articles that I read about your research that you actually started out by making a penis, right? Well, we actually have worked on many different tissues. We started out, um, you know, in terms of cell therapies with cartilage, for example, uh, to inject in patients. And then we also have looked at skin and, and other organs such as the, um, such as uh, hollow non-tubular organs. We also looked at the penis. Um, but basically, there's a stepwise uh incremental complexity in terms of organs and how we view them. And so what we've tried to do in the past is really follow that path in terms of trying to bring these tissues to the patients. Well, is it basically the same process to create organs no matter what the organ? It is a similar process. So basically we're looking at flat structures as being the least complex, such as skin, for example. Now, all tissues are complex, but but, but flat structures are the least complex. 
they're made up mostly of one cell type. They're flat in origin, so architecturally they're uh, less complex to make. The second level of complexity are tubular organs, like blood vessels, for example. Um, and these are slightly more complex. The architecture is more complex because it's a tube, not a flat structure. There are two major cell types instead of one. The third level of complexity are hollow non-tubular organs, like, like the stomach or the vaginal organ, for example, where uh, the architecture is more complex, the cells are functionally more complex, there's more interaction with other organs. And finally, the most complex organs are the solid organs, like the liver, the heart, uh, the phallus, like you mentioned, the penis. These solid organs are by far the most complex, mainly because you have many more cells per centimeter, and the requirements for blood vessel in terms of supply are much larger. So what does all this mean in terms of uh, organ transplants then? Well, I think, you know, certainly organ transplantation is still here and a very important part of what we do for patients. The hope, of course, is someday in the future uh, to be able to reduce the number of patients on the transplant wait list by basically using the patient's own cells. Because right now, for a transplant to occur, you basically need, for, you need to wait for a patient to die to be a donor or you need to have a live relative a donor that, that's willing to go through, through a risk of surgery to provide that organ for someone else. So here, the concept would be, instead of doing transplantation in a usual manner, let's just take a small piece of the tissue from the patient, grow and expand the cells outside the body, recreate the organ, and put it back in. So can you see us, and I, I hate to sound completely science fiction, uh, but I'm going to anyway, but so at some point, might we be able to create all of our own replacement organs? Well, you know, certainly that's the, the hope. You know, we're not there yet. We can certainly create a number of organs right now. Uh, we talked about four categories of organs. Up to this point, we've been able to implant the first three types into patients flat structures such as skin, tubular structures, um, uh, hollow non-tubular organs like the vaginal organ. We have not yet implanted a solid organ in patients, but the hope is that in the future we will be able to expand the number of tissues we put into patients and also expand the indications for which they receive them. So I'm wondering, does this have other broader implications uh, other than just with organs? Can we use this technology for other things? Well, at the current uh, time, we are actually looking at these technologies, for example, to create miniature human organs that we can use for testing for drugs or chemical agents or biological warfare, for example. We currently have a program that is funded by, the, um, by DITRA, which is the Defense Threat Research Agency. Uh, called the Excel program, in which we are basically working uh, just to do that. We were working on creating small human organs with live cells that we can then uh, place in microchips and use for testing drugs and uh, use it for drug discovery as well. Sir, you sound remarkably calm for someone that is doing this kind of work. How, are you, how do you not sound more enthusiastic? Because this is incredible, you realize. You're you're trying to say that you know we have you know this work of course as you can imagine takes takes decades to uh, to um, 
to complete. And really a lot of the work that you see today, for example, like the vaginal organ, you know, it's something that we started over 20 years ago. So for us, it's, you know, these are daily challenges that we have to face day after day to make sure that we're able to get to our endpoint and to get to our goal, which of course is to uh, be able to get these technologies to patients to make them better. Well, I will be excited for you. Anthony, thanks very much for being here. Thank you. Good to be with you. And you can find a link to Dr. Anthony Atala and his work on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People, and I'm Desiree Shell. I'm joined by Marie E. Herberstein, an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Marie investigates the behavioral ecology of invertebrates, including spiders and insects, within an evolutionary framework. Her research deals with establishing spiders as significant models in behavioral and evolutionary research, deceptive signals in spiders and orchids, and the mating behavior and sexual selection in spiders and insects. Thanks very much for being here, Marie. Thanks, Desiree. So you were one of the authors of a study that I found absolutely thrilling because it's something that I've been asking myself for years. Uh, the title is Genital Evolution. Why are females still understudied? So uh, do tell us about your research, please. So this study was conducted with two colleagues of mine, Marlene Arking and Andrew Barron. And um, we were lamenting or we were discussing biases in our research areas. And one of the big biases that we're confronted with are, of course, the way we see and interpret males and females and their behavior or their morphology. Um, and we realized that, that we have all these assumptions. And these assumptions, they sit in all of us. We have assumptions about what males are meant to be and what females are meant to be. And it's very hard to escape these assumptions because we grow up with them. And there's nothing wrong with having assumptions. But as scientists, we just have to be very, very aware of them. So one of the big questions in evolutionary biology is how are genitalia evolving? Because genitalia are extraordinarily diverse. They are very different between species, even though external morphology may be very, very similar. It'll be the genitalia that are very different. So there's a lot of research going on into genital evolution. And, and what has always been a knowledge an implied knowledge or sometimes even expressed is that we are very biased in the way we look at genital evolution and predominantly researchers look at male genitals but they, they tend to neglect female genitals so lots of the studies that you read about how rapidly genitalia are evolving are based on what we're measuring in males but not in females and so we went about and we really wanted to put data against it and really show our research field that this bias is quite significant. 
And in order to make progress, we need to address this bias. And that was the motivation behind the study. So you actually analyzed a number of studies. Yeah, so we went and um, we went back into the literature and, and, and we looked at over 300 studies that studied aspects of genital evolution. So that was really important. We didn't just want to look at studies that described genitalia, but we looked at studies that tried to interpret why genitalia are evolving so rapidly. And so we confined ourselves to those studies. And then when we read all of these papers, which was fascinating, I really enjoyed it. And, um, and we noted down whether the authors were looking at male genitalia, whether they were looking at female genitalia, whether they were looking at both sexes, and what sort of, um, what sort of conclusions they were drawing from the patterns that they were seeing. So now what were your results? So what, what we found, it was really interesting. First of all, overall, if you lump all the studies together, many, many more papers, many more studies look at male genitalia. So there's a real bias there. Um, so we found something like, and, and, and this bias is actually increasing since over the last 20 years. So um, almost over 60% of studies are just looking only at male genitalia and not at all at female genitalia. And, and studies that are looking at both genitalia over that period of time are actually decreasing, which is, of course, a worrying trend. But more so, when we look at different explanations for the evolution of genitalia, we find there's a, there, it, it, uh, researchers, when they have different assumptions, look at different aspects of genitalia. So... Uh, researchers that are looking, say, for a lock and key mechanism, which is this idea that male and female genitalia um, fit together like a lock and key, and they prevent the wrong species from mating with each other. And even though that concept in, in explicitly talks about a key, which is which the male genitalia, yes, uh, and a lock, here we have the strongest bias where researchers only look at male genitalia. Interesting. But then we have other mechanisms like cryptic female choice where uh, researchers are assuming that male genitalia are shaped in a particular way to influence the female choice of their sperm. And here we have the least bias. So here researchers working under this assumption are more likely to look at male and female genitalia together and not just at one or the other. Now, there were some fields that show more female genital studies than others, right? Yes. So cryptic female choice is um, one of the area, areas that, that we found was much more balanced. Um, but again, they were looking more at both genitalia rather than only female or only male genitalia. So, of course... Overall, overall, there's very, very few studies that only look at female genitalia. So, of course, the question is why? Why are female yeah. genitals studied less? Does, <clears throat> does the gender of the scientist doing the research have anything to do with it? Well, uh, no, it doesn't, which is very reassuring. Um, so, we, so we, we don't have a, a case of male scientists only 
interested in looking at male bits and female scientists only interested in looking at female bits. There is no bias based on gender. I think um, it's a combination of a cultural assumptions, um, possibly methodolo methodology, and also scientific assumptions. So the cultural and the scientific assumptions kind of are very difficult to disentangle. It's really how we see males and females and their roles in, in, in their interaction and, and their roles under sexual selection, how they evolve. And the root to this really starts with, with Charles Darwin. And again, I really don't want to imply that, that Darwin got anything wrong. Uh, I, thought, I think he was, he was a, a marvelous thinker and one of our greatest thinkers ever. Um, but his idea of what are males like and what are females like very much reflected, you know, the, the early uh, 20th century, the late 19th century. And so in his interpretation of what he saw, he assumed that, that males are very dynamic, they're very active, they want to mate a lot, whereas females are much more passive, they don't want to mate a lot, they're very coy. And this, this assumption really... Um, has has influenced the way we've been looking at males and females. So when it comes to looking at the evolution of genitalia, this it, it spills into our assumptions. So it's the male genitalia that are doing all these things, and the females are just sort of the passive vessels of whatever goes on in there. And that's actually not what we see in in a lot of the research that's been coming out in the in the over the last few years. That yeah. uh, the female is definitely not passive. That's right. So this this new field of of cryptic female choice that has only sprung up in the last twenty years really focuses on how females are influencing fertilization. And and some of the papers we highlighted in 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 our uh, recent study here that that really shows that when you look at both male and female genitalia, you can see a really dynamic interaction between what the male bits are doing and how the female bits are either supporting what male bits are doing or actually counteracting what male bits are doing. Well, but how would that perception uh, of female reproduction as, as passive, how would that lead to the comparative dearth of vagina research? Well, the assumption therefore is that um, if female genitalia are passive, there wouldn't be much variation. You know, all you need is some sort of cavity and off you go. And whatever variation you see is only expressed in male genitalia. So there's no point in looking at female genitalia because they're not really active components in the evolution of genitalia. They're just very passive. So therefore, you know, you save yourself some time, um, you don't need to look at, at female genitalia. And on the, on the surface of it, it also looks difficult. You know, you have to dig around and get in there, whereas male genitalia nicely flop out, and there you can have a look at it. So methodologically, in some cases, it can be more difficult to um, look at the morphology of female genitalia. But really in our paper, we're saying, well, guys, you know, that's an old an old excuse, we now have super, super technology, we have um, um, ways of looking at internal structures, and there's lots of internal male structures too that we need to look at. And so the old argument, oh, it's just too difficult, just doesn't cut it anymore. 
So what's the what's the response been to your work? Well, it, uh, we're really surprised at how well the paper has been received and how much interest we've been getting um, from the science community, but also from um, radio shows or print media um, in in highlighting this study. Um, so over, overwhelmingly, I think our researcher colleagues are saying, look, good on you for putting this out there. We know this is happening and well done for actually putting data against it and showing how extreme this bias is. Well, and, but is anyone finding fault with your interpretation? No, no, not so far. Not so far. I mean, we have published our data as well. So we have the list of the papers and everyone can go in there and see whether we have misinterpreted any of the um, conclusions that studies have arrived at. So that obviously will take some time for anyone to go through those papers and highlight that if, if we have indeed made a mistake. But, you know, we were three researchers. We were looking, the three of us were looking at the papers. So it wasn't just a single person who may have had their own little biases. So we're very confident that we interpreted the studies the way they were meant to inter be interpreted. And really all we did in, in, to evaluate the papers was understand what the authors were attributing patterns of genital evolution to, what sort of mechanism, and whether they looked at male or female genitalia or both. So it wasn't quite rocket science to get you know, those information out of the papers. I think you can do this at home as well, listeners. Um, so far, it's been good. I've read some comments in newspapers that reported on the study where people are going, oh, this is all gender science rubbish and we're spending our, mm. our money on, on this sort of stuff. We're wasting our money. And, and I'd like to say that this is, this is not gender science. This is evolutionary biology. And what we're highlighting is a bias in the way we're looking at evolution and, and consequences if we don't address this bias. And the consequences are is that we're misinterpreting what we're seeing. So biases exist. We are all affected by biases. And occasionally we just need to remind ourselves that we have these biases and we need to be conducting our research that minimizes these biases. So uh, now you mentioned the consequences of these biases. So what, what are the tangible consequences? Well, we, we give a number of, of examples of, of complete misinterpretation if we only looked at one or the other uh, genital. And I'm saying that, you know... We, I'm not saying that we shouldn't look at male genitalia. Obviously, when we're looking at structures that are interacting, we just must look at both parts. So one of the studies we're citing, which is a really exciting study, it's on a um, earwig. And the males have this incredible structure. It's called a verga. And this verga can be as, as long as the, the, the body of the, of the male itself. And it has... Um, a fringe of hairs at, at its tip and, the, and this verga it's, it, is part of the penis but it's not the structure that actually ejaculates sperm but it's inserted into the female and it removes sperm that the female may already have inside her or the assumption is that because it's inserted before ejaculation 
that it just scoops out any sperm that's already in there. And that was, for many years, the interpretation of what this Virga does. And, and only recently, uh, the researchers looked actually what happens inside the female. And it turns out that the female structure is even longer than the male Virga, which means that it actually prevents the males from scooping out any sperm because the sperm is safely tucked away, far away from the reach of this Virga. So here we have an excellent example of how there's this dynamic between a male structure trying to accomplish scooping out of sperm and a female structure that's actually preventing it. So obviously the answer is everyone who has the inclination or, or the capacity, go out and do some vagina research. Right oh, now. absolutely. For, absolutely. For science. That's Get wonderful. Get up. Do it. Yes. <laughs> Marie, wonderful to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. We've linked to Marie Herberstein and her work on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, an interview on female condoms. On the next episode of Science for the People, we're learning about some of the legal chemicals that regulate the moods of millions of people every day. Journalist Murray Carpenter joins us to talk about his book, Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps, Hurts, and Hooks Us. And science blogger Dr. David Gorski explains the state of research on the effects of e-cigarettes. That's next week on Science for the People, on your local radio station, or online at scienceforthepeople.ca. This is Science for the People, and I'm your host, Desiree Shell. I'm joined by Emily Anthes, science journalist and author with a master's degree in science writing from MIT and a bachelor's degree in the history of science and medicine from Yale, where she also studied creative writing. We've had her on the show previously to talk about her book, Frankenstein's Cat, Cuddling Up to Biotech's Brave New Beasts. Great to have you back, Emily. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Now, the reason you're back is to talk about the terrific piece you wrote for MosaicScience.com about the female condom. So give us some backstory here. How was it developed? Well, the initial female condom was the invention of a, a Danish doctor named Lasse Hessel. And in the 80s, an American pharmaceutical company executive flew out to Denmark, met with Hessel, and signed an agreement with him to develop and market his prototype. And the prototype he came up with, the product that they came up with, is basically sort of what you can think of as an inverted male condom. So it's a thin polyurethane pouch, and it has a flexible ring inside. And women can squeeze the ring and insert the pouch into their vaginas. And it then lines the inside of the vagina and provides protection against pregnancy and STDs. And so this company developed some prototypes. They had to get it approved by the FDA, which took six years. But eventually, by the early 90s, by 1992 and 1993, they put this product, which was called the Reality Female Condom, uh, on the market in the U.S. So that's the, the brief origin story of, of the first female condom. Well, what were the pros and cons of, of that condom specifically? 
Well, the main pro was just the idea of it. You know, this is the early 90s, so AIDS is, is still a major problem. It's on the radar. It's something that a lot of people are thinking about. And here's a product that allows women to protect themselves that women can be in control of. So the idea and the, the reason this was so heralded by public health experts is because it didn't require the man to do anything. Women didn't have to beg their partners to wear a male condom. Instead, they could take control of their sexual health themselves. So that was, that was the main pro, the very idea of it. There were also a lot of cons, uh, and particularly in, in the design of this device. It was sort of a strange device and, and not as intuitive as the male condom. It was not something that women were familiar with, and it could be difficult to insert. Uh, some women found it uncomfortable once it was inserted. And frankly, it was also just a strange looking device. So male condoms, as most of us know, come rolled up and compressed in these small little packets. But the female condom was packaged sort of wide open. And so men and women would open this package and see what looked sort of like a, a huge plastic bag and, and found that to be a real turnoff. They didn't like how the device looked. So it had some aesthetic obstacles to overcome as, as well as some issues with the design that seemed to interfere with, with comfort wearing the device itself. It was also loud, was it not? It was loud. Some people did complain about sort of a, a squeaking or a rustling sound during sex, which as you can imagine is, is not very appealing either. And uh, unfortunately, it was also expensive. That's right. So because it was more material, because it was a newer product, uh, it could be as much as $5 for a single condom, uh, where male condoms are often less than a dollar. And I actually talked to a woman who was in college around this time when the female condom came out, and she points out, you know, when you're in your 20s, especially when you're in college, you can get male condoms for free right. anywhere. I'm not going to go spend $5 on a free female condom when I can go down the hall and get a handful of free male ones. So the, the price was an obstacle as well. So what was the consumer response? Well, it was sort of bifurcated. In the U.S. and in the U.K., it was sort of laughed out of existence before it could really take off. Uh, the media covered it pretty extensively and often very negatively, pointing out the cons. And I think women in, in these countries, especially places like the U.S. and the U.K., felt a little bit insulated from HIV. For them, it wasn't an everyday concern or something that they thought would, would happen to them. So it really did not take off here. But there were some places around the world, most notably Zimbabwe, where women heard about this condom and began to demand it. Um, these were places where women felt perhaps more vulnerable to HIV and AIDS, uh, and often polygamy was involved, so women had husbands who had other partners. And so women in Zimbabwe in particular started a petition, which was signed by tens of thousands of women, demanding that the government bring the female condom there. So in places like Africa, there was a, a demand for this condom, and, and it was sort of the other, the flip side of the American response. So uh, when they actually got the condom, what was the response to it? It, it had a positive response. It, women did like it. Um, women did use it. But 
it did not take off the same way the male condom took off. I, I have a statistic in the story where it's something like fewer than 2% of all the condoms distributed worldwide are female condoms. And partly that's because of the price. So a lot of health clinics in rural parts of Africa or Asia um, have had trouble keeping it in stock. There hasn't been a huge supply. And there's still some education that needs to go on. One thing that public health experts have learned is that you can't just put these condoms on the shelf and expect them to, to fly off, that you need to teach women how to use them. You may need to coach women in, in how to talk about these devices with their partners. So even though they're female controlled, they're not entirely invisible. And unless the man is completely out of it, he's probably gonna notice that his partner is wearing one. So women do still need to have a conversation about, here's why I'm using this device, and that can be difficult. So it, it was sort of a double-edged response. Many women were very grateful for these condoms, and it did win some converts. Uh, women, once they learned how to use them, often liked them and appreciated them. But there were still some real hurdles in, in getting them into women's hands and, and getting them used. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to science journalist Emily Anthes about the female condom. Now, so th there have been issues, but uh, there are other companies as well trying to develop a female condom that, that women will actually use. Uh, can you talk about PATH and their work? Sure. So, you know, here in, in a lot of these Western countries, the US, the UK, it seemed like the female condom just sort of fell off the radar and disappeared. But what I learned in my reporting is that while that happened, while it was falling off the radar, there were some organizations that were sort of quietly tinkering with the female condom and trying to redesign it. So one of the organizations I focused on is PATH, a, a global health nonprofit that's based in Seattle. And they pride themselves on having this user-centered design process. So they decided that if they were going to create a female condom that women would really want to use, they should do something that seems both very obvious but was a little bit radical, which was to consult actual women. Yes. So, which seems like something you might want to do, right? But is not often a part of creating these, these sexual health products. And so they convened focus groups, and because they wanted a product that was globally appealing, they um, arranged these focus groups in four different countries, in the U.S., in Mexico, in Thailand, and in South Africa. And they asked women what they wanted in a female condom, what challenges they had with the current condoms. And they had these product designers back in Seattle coming up with all these prototypes. They ended up coming up with 300 unique prototypes, and they would send these prototypes out to these focus groups and ask people to respond to what they looked like, to what they felt like. And towards the later stages of the process, they asked couples to actually take prototypes home and, and try them and then report back. And so through this process, they came up with sort of a radically different design. A lot of the female condoms that had been envisioned previously had this sort of ring-based design where there's this flexible ring in the bottom of the pouch and women squeeze it and can use that ring to insert the condom and then it stays put when the ring expands. But that was a major issue for users. It was difficult to insert and users often found the ring uncomfortable once it was inserted. So PATH did away with, with that whole 
design. Uh, they had this breakthrough when some women in the focus group said, what would be great is if there were some way to insert the condom that then just disappeared. And they sort of took that literally because they dissolved, uh, I'm sorry, because they designed a condom that involved a dissolving capsule. So the condom they came up with, which is called the women's condom, basically looks like you can imagine it like a funnel. So there's a thin sheet of uh, polyurethane and it comes down to a point. And this point, the main part of the condom pouch is collapsed inside this sort of rounded dissolving capsule. And women can insert the condom by pushing the capsule inside. It's very similar to inserting a, uh, a tampon. And once the capsule has been pushed inside, it simply dissolves away, it melts away, and the full condom pouch is deployed inside the vagina. And so this turned out to have a couple advantages. First of all, it was easier to insert, and women found it more comfortable. And it also got rid of the problem, the aesthetic problem of the original condom where you open the box and the whole thing is right. unfolded before you. Now it's sort of hidden away inside this more discreet capsule. Um, so that's one of the innovative solutions that, that people have come up with. That's path condom and it's called the woman's condom. How does it stay stable when you're having sex? Because I imagine movement. Yes, so uh, the ring-based designs use the ring to stay stable, so PATH needed to come up with a different solution. Uh, and they ended up using sort of four very thin pieces of foam. They attached the foam to the outside of the condom, and once the capsule dissolves away and the pouch expands inside the vagina, the foam pieces sort of nestle up against the vaginal wall and they cling to the vaginal wall and they keep the condom in place. Well, and PATH isn't the only one uh, with a female condom offering, which is exciting. This is, uh, there's also the, the Cupid? Right. So there's, you know, I, I focus on PATH because I think their process is innovative and interesting and their product is great, but there are a number of other companies that are also taking their own crack at the female condom. Um, the Cupid, which was designed by an Indian company, uh, instead of a plastic ring, they have a ring-shaped foam sponge, which they use. Um, and the other notable thing is that it's made of latex, natural latex. And one of the reasons male condoms are so much cheaper than female condoms is because they use latex, which is a cheaper material. So the Cupid could help bring the price of female condoms down, which is, is still a bit high. So, and, and as you said, this is only the beginning. There are a number of different companies and, and different designs that are, that are currently waiting for approval. That's right. So different, com uh, different countries have different approval processes, but one kind of approval that's really important is UN approval. So a lot of condoms worldwide are actually purchased not by drugstores or directly by consumers, but by aid organizations. National and international aid organizations will purchase condoms in bulk and then distribute them to clinics or to places where they think condoms are needed. But in order to buy, if you're an aid organization, in order to buy one of these condoms, you're looking for condoms that have been approved by the UN. And so some of these condoms now, some of the new designs are undergoing that approval process. And if the UN approves the condoms, then that will sort of pave the way for major 
aid organizations to buy them in bulk and to start sending them out to health clinics. Well, this is what's interesting to me. That It seems like that's a lot of different offerings for a product that no one is really buying. That's kind of unusual, isn't it? It is unusual. And, and that was something I asked um, some of the companies about. You know, are, are you in competition? Are you worried that there's room for all of you? And And some of them said, you know, they weren't sure how many different products the market would bear. Uh, right now, the different designs are mostly available in different places in different countries, so they're not competing directly. But I think your choice is a good thing. I mean, one of the things that the experts I talk to say is that not every design or not every product is right for every woman or every couple. You know, one condom might feel more stable but less natural, where another condom feels a lot more natural and has better sensation but moves around a little more. And so if you give women more choices in condoms, it it increases the odds that they will use any condom at all. You know, whether all of these products will ultimately succeed or survive in the market, I think is too early to say. But in theory, at least, it's it's a good thing to give women and couples more choice. Right, because right now, as you said, we're, we're kind of limited to asking our male partners to wear a condom. There's not much that, that we can do to protect ourselves from STIs or HIV. Right. And, and one thing I should probably mention is that it's not always a condom of last resort for women who feel like they can't convince their their male partners to wear condoms. Some couples come to prefer female condoms. They like the sensation better or the male partner may have trouble getting an erection and they find that a female condom is a better solution. So there are women and, and men too and couples who have decided that they prefer whatever it is about female condoms to the standard male condom. So besides updating the design, uh, is there anything that these companies are doing to avoid some of the the challenges that female condoms have faced in the past? Yes, there's definitely a a resurgence in interest in education and public awareness campaigns. I think advocates have really learned from the introduction of the first condom that these are not, by and large, products that sell themselves. They're still a little bit expensive. They're still not quite intuitive. They're not going to fly off the shelves on their own. So there are awareness campaigns that have been launched, advertising campaigns in the U.S., uh, billboards in Africa, radio campaigns. There are also educators out there, peer educators, who are trying to teach women what these condoms are about and how they're used and how they can broach the subject of a female condom in their relationship. So there's a a number of new organizations and organizations that are partnering together to sort of try and both raise awareness in general and then also provide the tools that women need if they really want to try out one of these products. And is is there any other STI protection coming down the pipeline that women can use that is not a female condom? Well, one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention is these sort of microbicidial gels. So gels that women can rub on and in their vagina that kill HIV. And and there's been a lot of excitement about these gels. Um, Unlike the female condom, they would be truly invisible. So women could use them without their male partners knowing. Uh, There's also some medications that can be taken orally for that. Um, But they've sort of had mixed success in the field. Um, There's still issues with compliance. Uh, Researchers are finding that 
they don't work that well if they're not used regularly and sometimes they're not used regularly and properly. So I think they're incredibly exciting and will be another tool in our toolbox, absolutely. But one of the things I learned in writing this story is that I think it's unlikely that any one single technology is going to be the magic bullet that stops HIV. It's, it's more a question of putting lots of tools in our toolbox and hoping that together this collection of technologies can, can begin to make a dent in, in the disease. How long will it be until there are as many female condoms on the drugstore shelves as there are for men? You know, I'm, I'm not sure that's that's ever going to happen, quite frankly. I, I think we will see more female condoms. You know, whether we'll see them in a dozen different colors and flavors, I don't know. Um, but one of the things that I talked about with, with some of these experts is just because the female condom may be destined to never be as popular or as cheap as the male condom doesn't mean that's not an important tool that we can use and that it's not going to be an important part of the solution. It may always be a slightly more niche product, and, and that's okay if there are women who find it helpful and, and useful. Emily, thanks for being here. Sure, thanks for having me. And we've linked to Emily Anthes and her piece on the female condom on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Just before we sign off today, we wanted to remind you that July 11th is World Population Day. Established by the Governing Council of the United Nations Development Program in 1989, World Population Day happens annually and it raises awareness about population issues around the world. Any long-time listeners will know that we've tackled population issues on the show before. If you hit up our archives, you can listen to episode 251, which is Countdown, where we talk to journalist and author Alan Wiseman about the intersection of population and policy. Now, one of the main concepts in your book is that this will likely be the century that determines what the optimal human population is for our planet. So first off, what do you mean by optimal human population? How many people can be on this planet without seriously destabilizing it? I sometimes refer to it a little more colloquially in the book, you know, without capsizing it or tipping it over. And I think everybody gets the meaning. Throughout most of human history, human populations stayed quite stable and it was really quite low. Just like any other species, if we ever got too numerous, nature would knock us back. But then beginning in the 19th century with medical advances and in the 20th century with increased food production we learned how to cheat on mother nature our population suddenly doubled and then doubled again and we have an abnormal growth rate and an abnormal population that to us feels quite normal because we were born right into the middle of it but nature is starting to react seriously to our presence on this planet and eventually one way or another I think the population is going to have to come back down to something that's uh, more in balance with the rest of the ecosystem. Uh, I wrote this book hoping that we can bring the population down gracefully and not painfully and not coercively uh, as opposed to letting nature do it to us which can get pretty brutal. 
If you look a little farther back in our archives, you'll find episode 125, Global Population, where we sat down with William Ryerson, president and founder of the Population Media Center, for an in-depth look at the global population cliff and how quickly we're coming up to it. Okay, so now that we know where we stand, let's talk about what we're looking at in the future. Now, your staff sent us a United Nations population projection that runs through the year 2100. And the numbers are really interesting. First of all, there are four different projections, and they do vary pretty dramatically. The median projection is what many journalists assume is just a given. But in fact, it's based on assumptions that are open to scrutiny. And I think in particular the median projections because by calling them the median projections, the UN Population Division implies they're the most likely to occur. Right. Uh, one of the assumptions to get us to about 9.3 billion by 2050 and 10.1 billion by 2100 is that fertility rates approaching 2050 will have fallen to 1.85 children per woman globally. In countries like Nigeria, where the average desired number of children is seven among women and nine among men, to just assume that fertility rates will fall to 1.85 children is not based on anything other than plugging a number into the computer. We also spoke with Dr. Ronald Lee, director of the Center on the Economics and Demography of Aging, about how population projects are created and how reliable they are. You can find both of those episodes on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca or in our episode list on iTunes. We also wanted to give a little signal boost to a crowdsourcing project we heard about from the Center for Biological Diversity. On this World Population Day, they want to know what a world of 7 billion people feels like to you, and they want you to send them your photos. So get out your camera phones and look around you. How does population growth affect you? Maybe you've noticed that your daily commute is a lot slower because there's more traffic on the road, or perhaps the train you're riding on is packed full with standing room only. Or maybe that quiet countryside getaway that you used to love visiting, maybe it's turned into a suburb. Snap a photo showing how population growth has affected your corner of the world and post it on Instagram or Twitter with the hashtag CrowdedPlanet. And if you're not a fan of Twitter or Instagram, you can also email your photo to CrowdedPlanet at BiologicalDiversity.org. Afterwards, the photos will be compiled by the Center for Biological Diversity in hopes of showcasing the different ways that population growth has changed people's lives in the places they love. If you want to learn more about World Population Day or the Crowded Planet Project from the Center for Biological Diversity, you can check out the links on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. 
The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.